Our scripture reading is one of three places where they are commanded to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. In Hebrew, it's Sukkoth, which means booths. Last of the great feasts of the Jewish liturgical year, it was the most popular. It attracted the largest crowd. And as Mike was reading, doesn't that sound good? What if we took once a year where everybody had to celebrate for seven days? Everybody. Remember, it's, it's, it's the aliens in your midst. It's, there's no classes. It's, it's uh, uh, servants and, uh, and, and people. It's, it, it, it's, it's everybody. Wouldn't it be great if uh, we took a week, a year, and everybody celebrated? And this was the most popular. It was the most joyous time of holidays. Yom Kippur has passed. Sins had been confessed and forgiven. The temple cleansed for an entire year. The people were clean before God. So a major theme of the feast was joy and thanksgiving. In fact, it was commanded. You have to love a God that commands you to be joyful. I command you to be joyful. Mike read it, I think, from the New International Version, from the Jewish Publication Society's version of the Tanakh. Verse 15 goes this way. You shall hold a festival for the Lord your God seven days in the place that the Lord will choose for the Lord. Your God will bless all your crops, all your undertakings, and you shall have nothing but joy. He commanded. You couldn't be a party pooper at this one. You shall have nothing but joy. It commemorates the Exodus, Israel's wandering in the wilderness, when God provided them with water and he provided them with light. At night during this particular feast, there were huge bowls of oil atop the pillars of the temple. It lit the temple brilliantly, brilliantly. There were torchlight processions that added to the lighting. Light was a major theme of the feast in Jesus' day. Because remember, in the wilderness, he led them at night by a pillar of what? By a pillar of fire. He made night day for them. Another theme of the feast is pilgrimage. The idea that God's people have no permanent abode. The booth has to be temporary. It's, it's like a tent, but it's not a tent. It's even less temporary than a tent. It reminds them that they are pilgrims and strangers here on this earth. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. The booths, uh, the roofs of the booths had to be made with palm branches. You had to be able to see the stars through them. That's how temporary it was. The reminder that the Exodus taught, uh, that it taught Israel, just as God provided water and food to Israel in the wilderness, he continues to provide the same for the present. I said another great theme was water. He provided water for them where? In the second most desolate desert on the planet, he provided water for them. Sometimes it was springs and oases, but a lot of the times all he had to do was open up a rock. It was a good omen in the first century, Jesus' day, in this particular feast, if it rained. Because with this major theme of water, a high point was what they called a rain 
procession. And they would do this procession whether it rained or not. But if it rained, it was a great sign for all of them. A priest would lead a great procession out of the temple, down the hill to the Gihon Spring, chanting all the way these words. Isaiah 12, 3. Joyfully shall draw water from the fountains of what? Triumph. They would chant this all the way down to the spring. He would have a pitcher of water that he would get from the spring, a pitcher of living water, and then he would ascend the priest's entrance to the temple. It was a flight of 15 steps, and every step he would recite one of the pilgrimage psalms, 120 to 134. When he got back there, there's a pair of sinks in the floor of the temple with pipes that, that joined the sinks together and then they drained out into the Kidron Valley. The, the, uh, the, remember again, when you say valley in Jerusalem, it's a ditch, okay? But it's, it's a gully, you know, if you will. It's, it's, it's not the San Joaquin Valley. It's, you know, it's a, you, I hop to, when you go, you hop across the Kidron Valley, okay? In order to get across the street. You get what I'm saying? But anyway, anyway, the pipes would go down there. And they would, in, in the two sinks, they would take the living water that he brought up from the spring and he would take a pitcher of wine and they would pour it into the two sinks. And if it was raining, and it rained enough, technically, technically, that water and that wine could wash all the way out to the Dead Sea. If you look at the topography, when he poured them together. So it mixed and it would flow all the way out to the Dead Sea. Next time you're reading in Ezekiel 47, this is what they've taken it to mean. This water, he told me, runs out to the eastern region, flows into the Arabah, the wilderness again, the desert around the Dead Sea. And when it comes into the sea, into the sea of foul waters, the water will become wholesome. So they're looking forward to this. They're looking forward to that which could make the dead living, if you will. And the Dead Sea is aptly named. There's nothing living in it. And I would imagine that uh, those of us who have swam in it, if you spent enough time in there, you wouldn't be living anymore either. This last time that we went, I made a huge mistake. I got a mouthful of that water. That water burned my mouth and my throat and my eyes and my nose for like three days. There's nothing living in the Dead Sea. But by the way, the, the, the prophecy goes on. He says, fishermen shall stand beside it all the way from En Gedi to En Glaim. That's one, one all the way to the other. The fish will be of various kinds and most plentiful, like the fish of the great sea. Everything that you can find in the Mediterranean, they said you can find in the Dead Sea if this living water and this living wine were to reach it. I love the next verse. But the swamps and marshes shall not become wholesome because they will supply salt. So imagine that. It doesn't become so wholesome that it doesn't take away their supply of salt. So the dead and the living are made living, all of it, living together. This is the feast that Jesus shows up in in John chapter 7. This is the feast that, that he comes to say the words that we will look at today and who he is. In verse 37, it says this. It says, on the last day of the festival, that's the day of the rain uh, procession, if you will. The last day of the festival, 
The great day while Jesus was standing there, he cried out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me. And the one who believes in me drink, as the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of what? Of living water. There in the midst of the high priest trying to make the dead sea alive, Jesus shouts out, I am the living water. This is the feast that he shows up for. This is the background of those words right there. See, the people seek spiritual, spiritual water at the feast. Jesus tells them that he is the water of life. Just like in the last chapter, he told them that he was the bread of life. He is. He fulfills everything that they are looking for. Everything that Judaism promised, the temple, the feasts, the kingdom, all fulfilled in Christ. In the temple ceremony, the vessels of the priests are filled only for a short time. Those who come to Jesus have flowing water available at all times. He already promised it to the woman at the well in chapter four. You come to me, you'll never be thirsty again. It will be a well springing up constantly unto everlasting life. During the feast, the people prayed for rain because rain at that time was a good sign. Like I said, it, it produced an excellent grain growing season. Jesus tells them their request is answered in a way that they didn't expect. I am the water of life. He says that this is about the spirit which believers in him were to receive for as yet there was no spirit because Jesus had not yet been glorified. This water that they're looking for, he said, don't be looking for it in the rain. It's in my spirit that I'll gladly give to you. The Holy Spirit is the living water that Jesus offers. Jesus is the source of the Holy Spirit of all who would come to him. So in this assertion, Jesus replaces the temple because according to Ezekiel, the temple was the source of the living water that will refresh the land. He is the temple, if you will. By the way, in the kingdom, when it says, I saw no temple there, for the lamb is our temple, that's what it is talking about. We don't need a building to worship Jesus in anymore because God has promised to walk with us and talk with us. He is the living word become flesh. We don't need a temple, don't need a priesthood. So is this a reason to have nothing but joy? Do you think that at that festival, at this time where Jesus says these words, that everybody there is following God's command by saying, you shall have nothing but joy? This Feast of Tabernacles, is it, are they having nothing but joy? If we think so, we haven't read John chapter seven. In verse 37, I said that he cried out. He stood up and he cried out that he is the living water. That Greek word cry comes from a primitive root and actually means to scream. He's literally screaming it out loud. The only time that you see this word used again in the New Testament is when Jesus and the disciples are, around, are sitting around and that, uh, that Syrophoenician woman comes to ask to heal her daughter. She cries out in a voice, remember, that makes the disciples uncomfortable. They tell Jesus to make her shut up because it's a croak, it's a screech, it's a scream. 
Jesus literally is screaming. Why does Jesus have to scream these words? Because nobody's listening. Nobody's listening. The people that claim that they know the fulfillment of the Messiah, the people that claim that they've been looking for him, the people that claim that they know the signs, all at this festival with the signs all fulfilled right in front of them, and none of them recognize him. No one is listening. The beginning of the chapter also tells us that Jesus, as he showed up to this festival, is a marked man, isn't he? Remember, verse one, it says, after this, Jesus went uh, about in Galilee. He did not wish to go about in Judea because the Jews were looking for an opportunity to what? He's got a bounty on his head. One of the reasons why I think he's not real thrilled to wander back down to Judea for the feast is because he knows when he goes there, the people that are at that feast are looking to what? They're looking to kill him. Remember this too, real quick, just an aside. When John uses these words, the Jews, remember it's his way of saying the rulers, the religious leaders of the day, and not referring to the Jewish people as a whole. It's a shame that we have to point that out, but because of the, all of the centuries of anti-Semitism and people trying to paint every Jew with one brush, we've even used John's words to do so. John is not anti-Semitic, and he's not giving any Christian permission to be anti-Semitic. So when you read the Jews, remember, it's his way of lumping together the the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the chief priests, and the scribes. I imagine that he just got tired of saying that. And the reason that I know this is because if you read verse 13, it literally says that the Jews were scared of the Jews. The people were scared of the leaders, if you will. So, it's not a time in Jesus' ministry where things are going well. Nobody's listening to him. The people that claim to be looking for him don't recognize him, and he's already marked for what? For death. So it's not going well at this feast. There is not a lot of joy being held in our Lord and Savior's body at this particular time. So his brothers have a solution. We're told it says the Jewish Feast of Booths was near. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples uh, also may see the works that you're doing. For no one who wants to be widely known acts in secret. If you do these things, show yourself where? Show yourself to the world. Go do your works in Judea. Where are they now? They're in Galilee. Okay? They're up with all the hicks. They're up with the country people. His brothers say that, don't, that doesn't make any sense. Why are you hiding up here? Go do your works in Judea. You might accomplish your aims there. What's sad is what John adds in, chapter, in verse five. For not even his what? Not even his brothers believed in him. Now this is ironic, okay? But it's also something that should be a joy to us as we read the gospel of John. He's saying, look, those of us who were closest to him, 
his own family. We saw his miracles and we didn't believe. We heard his words firsthand and we didn't believe. When he performed everything that he performed in Galilee, it didn't matter. We did not believe. Not even his own family believed in him. Remember, Jesus says that there is no privilege to proximity. You do not have to be a member of the first generation in order to have Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, we are more blessed because we believe although we haven't seen. And he brings it up here again. Not even his brothers, what? Not even his brothers believed in him. So I guess the one thing that strikes me as I'm reading this, if I didn't know the background, and I'm sorry if you felt that I drug you all the way through this background, but if I didn't know the background of this, I've always believed that this was a joyous occasion even for him. But unfortunately, now that I read it again and I know the background, he's already lonely. He's already our man of sorrows. He's by himself even though he's with them all. Not even his brothers believe in him. His answer for him was this. Hey, my calendar is not based on your calendar. My time is not based on your time, he says. My time's not yet what? It's not yet come, but your time is always here. Your time is always here. You guys don't get it. I don't operate on your schedule. I have to operate on another schedule. The world cannot, what, hate you, but it hates me. Again, the loneliness begins to come through. He says, you guys don't get it. It's quite possible I go to Judea for the festival and they may what? They might kill me. He goes, they don't hate you. <laughs> they hate who? They hate me, he says. The timing of their actions don't matter much. Because the world doesn't hate them. They can go when they want. They're not hated in the world. He is because he teaches that their deeds are evil. Timing for Jesus is an altogether different thing. A single false step, and it could mean disaster for many. He doesn't let his family dictate any of the agenda that he knows has been set by who? It's been set by the Father. That's my agenda, he says. So he tells him, Go to the festival yourselves. I'm what? I'm not going to the festival, for my time is not yet fully come. And after this, he remained in Galilee. Brothers, but his, after his brothers, he then went to the festival, though he went what? He went in secret, not publicly. And I love that. He tells his brothers, my agenda is not yours. Okay, so he says, go ahead, I'm not going. And then he what? And then he goes. That just proves that his agenda is not anybody's, is it? Right? I don't think he was doing it to deceive him. I think that as soon as they left, he got a little knock on the door of his heart and the father saying, go ahead and go, son. So he what? He went. But he decides to go in secret. Jesus is in full tune with God's will for him. So we find him setting out for Jerusalem, but in secret. This is probably the first time that he will openly teach in the temple, at least in the Gospel of John. And everyone who hears him is absolutely amazed. They are astonished at it. The Jews were astonished at it, saying, how does this man have such learning when he's never been what? 
when he's never been taught. He does not teach the way that everyone else does. He doesn't teach the way the rabbis do. The rabbis would string together endless quotations from the previous rabbis. That's what the Talmud is. Rabbi so-and-so says this, and then you have two opinions that say, I agree with Rabbi so-and-so. The other one says, I don't agree with Rabbi so-and-so. And the reason being is because Rabbi so-and-so said that this guy can't be right. In other words, I have to admit, they teach just like I do. I'll give you endless quotations and marks and reasons from history. But he doesn't have to. He preaches from a standpoint, if you will, of authority. He has authority. And he claims himself as the authority, actually. He says, he says, those who speak on their own seek their own what? Seek their own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And there's nothing false in him. Jesus doesn't claim uh, himself as the authority. He claims the one who sent him is the authority, he says. So Jesus answered them and said, my teaching is not mine, but again, he who what? He who sent me. He didn't need to verify the truth of his teaching by quoting any other authority. Anybody who approaches Jesus' teaching with a sincere purpose to please God will recognize its divine origin, and here we have the problem. It is why they don't recognize him. He says, anyone who resolves to do the will of God will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own. It's up to who? It's up to us, he says. If we would resolve to do the will of God, we'd save ourselves a whole lot of trouble and a whole lot of arguing as to who has authority and who doesn't. The reason the leaders question his teachings surround one issue, and that, of course, he can't be learned about the law. It's obvious he's not learned about the law. There's also something underlying in here. He's from where? Where's from Jesus? Where's Jesus from? He's from the Galilee, okay? There's no university in Galilee. There's no rabbinic school in Galilee. Did I ever share with you what uh, Pastor Pate said when he described Galilee as compared to the rest of Judea? He said Galilee's like Nebraska, which if there's anybody from Nebraska out there, you know, that's what he's saying. Except there is a university in Nebraska. There's a couple of them. But you know what he's saying? The simple life. Galilee was farmers and fishermen and poor people. And so there is an undercurrent of prejudice here. The reason he's from the Galilee, the reason that they won't listen to him, one of the reasons is, is because he's from Galilee. They don't like his origins. And by the way, that's what they're going to begin to argue about, is what the law says that the Messiah could be, would be, come from, who he is, what he would do, uh, how he would do it. That's what the entire argument is going to be around. So, so the reason that they question his teachings is that they don't believe that a Galilean can know anything about the law. So Jesus introduces the subject very, very subtly. Okay, he just kind of lays it in there. It's, he, he just brings it up very, very subtly. He says, did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. He's very subtle here. 
extremely subtle. And then he says, the reason that I know that you're not keeping the law is because why are you looking for an opportunity to what? To kill me. None of you keep it, he says. You accuse me of breaking the fourth commandment. And this all goes back to the healing of the paralytic back in chapter five, right? It, it, it all goes back to that. He says, you accuse me of breaking the fourth commandment and by the way, commanding someone else to break the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, but you'll break the sixth commandment in order to enforce the fourth one. Thou shall not what? Murder. Thou shall not kill. You're willing to break that commandment because you believe I broke the Sabbath commandment. Which makes me think sometimes. You ever killed in the process of keeping the Sabbath? Oh, I have. Ask my son. Of course they deny it. It's his word against theirs. And we're from Jerusalem, and you're from what? You're from Galilee. So he shows them another way. He tries to point out the contradiction in their own thinking. Verse 21, he says, Jesus answered them, I performed one work, and you're all what? You're all astonished. I performed one work, and you're all astonished. Moses gave you circumcision. It is, of course, not from Moses, but from the patriarchs. He points that out. He knows what he's talking about, right? When did circumcision get introduced to Israel as a whole? Did Moses introduce it? No, Abraham did. So he does know what he's talking about, doesn't he? Because I guarantee you he wouldn't have got past that first line if he said Moses gave you circumcision. Somebody was waiting to jump on him. See, you don't know what you're talking about, Galilean. But Jesus says it, of course, isn't from Moses, but from the patriarchs. And you circumcise a man on the what? You circumcise on the Sabbath. Because every male child gets circumcised on the eighth day. So depending on when they're born, it doesn't, it, there, there is, they, they don't take Sabbath off from circumcising. Because the law says you circumcise them on the eighth day. Even if that falls on what? Even it falls on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the what? If a man can receive circumcision on the Sabbath in order that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me because I healed a whole man's body on the Sabbath? Isn't that beautiful? You guys got no problem with quote unquote Moses breaking the, the, the Sabbath commandment by performing a circumcision. It's just a little part, he said. It's just a little part. I healed a whole man, and you're upset. It's a beautiful way of teaching, too, by the way, and Jesus is a master of it. He's a master of this rabbinic teaching. I told you, I've pointed it out to you before. It's got a beautiful Hebrew idiom referring to it. It's called kal vachomer, the argument of the least to the greatest. The Bible is full of these. It's a Hebrew teaching. Will he not much more? If he does this, if he does this, then how much more? You know that teaching? And Jesus probably uses it as good as any of the rabbis ever did. My favorite, if a sparrow sells for half a penny and he looks out over them and not one of them falls without the attention of my father, 
how much more will he pay attention to you, a person, a human? You're worth much more than a sparrow. And that's what he says. This is Kalvach Homer, if you want to try to impress somebody, even if you're from Galilee. Teachings can't be trusted because he does not meet our expectation. He's from Galilee, and he certainly doesn't act like he knows what the law is. It's funny, the conversation is about to shift because of Jesus' argument, because of what he's uh, giving to them, and it's the crowd that'll provide the shift. It's what's happening to the crowd. Remember, I told you before that there's always three groups in in these narratives. There's Jesus and the disciples, there's the religious leaders, and then there's the crowd. And the one thing about the crowd is the crowd are the very people that the religious leaders say don't belong. Why? Because they're poor and they're tax collectors and they're prostitutes and they're sinners. And for some reason, they follow around Jesus. They're attracted to him. So from the day that he began, the sinners began to follow him around. Which, by the way, to the religious leaders, that was just another sign that he can't be the Messiah. Because if he really was the Messiah, why would he spend time with these people? You remember Simon at the Feast of Simon. He said if this guy was really the Messiah, he would know who this woman is, the prostitute that was cleaning his feet with her tears and her hair. So it's the crowd that begins to, begins to provide the, the, the shift, if you will. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is not this the man who they are trying to what? they're the ones that have begun to notice this. Aren't they trying to kill him? And here he is speaking what? Speaking openly, but they say nothing to him. So now all of a sudden, it's the Pharisees' action, it's the leader's action that is beginning to to, uh, have a crack in their veneer, if you will, a a contradiction. If they really want to kill him, why is he just standing there? Can it be that the authorities, they say, can it be that they really know that he's the what? That he's the Messiah. So the issue now is his Messiahship. Again, crucial in John. His opponents trap themselves in a series of self-contradictions. It's almost funny. No, it's not almost funny. It is funny. It is funny what their contradictions look like. It is funny to explore them as to what they're saying. First, they reject him because they know he's from Galilee, and supposedly no one will know where the Messiah came from. That's what the law says. Then they disqualify him by arguing that the Messiah would not or would come from Bethlehem. We know that he was born where? That he was born in Bethlehem, not Galilee. In the end, they're forced to admit that they really don't know where Jesus came from. And by the way, if they don't know where he came from, what does the law say that about the Messiah? We really don't know where he comes from, if you will. He'll say it in, in, in later on in chapter 9, verse 29. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know what. We don't know where he comes from. Chapter 8, verse 14, Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my, testify, my testimony is valid because I know where I've come from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I'm going where I, or where I come from. 
Then they said to him in, in verse 19, where's your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So John includes these arguments because it's, it's a problem for the first generation, not a problem for the second generation. We're privileged to be on the other side of this. We're privileged to have Jesus actually uh, figure out the argument for us and lay it right at our feet. See, Matthew will go right after the debate. He'll go right at it because Matthew is written primarily for a Jewish audience. And, Jew, and, and, and the Jewish audience that he's writing to, they love to debate. They love to argue. But John takes a different track. He doesn't refute them by putting Matthew's claims in here. He smiles. He takes a higher road by pointing out, that Jesus, pointing out Jesus' real origin. Remember, that's why they walked away from him in the wilderness after the feeding of the 5,000 is because he said, I'm the bread that's come down from where? They couldn't. They just couldn't. And then he cries out again. And why does he have to cry out? No one's listening. So he screams it again. You know me. And you know where I'm from. I've not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true, and you do not know him. I know him because I'm from him, and he sent me. Jesus then said, I'll be with you a little longer, and then I'm going where? Then I'm going to him who sent me. So the chapter ends with the leader's frustration that the guards who for some reason can't lay their hands on him, the guards, they send, they send the guards to go arrest him and the guards come wandering back and they say, well, why didn't you arrest him? And the guards go, no one's ever spoken like this guy. No one has ever spoken like this guy. Who, by the way, is just still just standing there teaching in the open. Then it really gets funny. Actually, it doesn't really get funny. It gets really scary, okay? The rest of it, it'll get really scary, if you, if you will. Jesus said, I'll be with you a little while longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. And, and they say this, the, the, when, when the crowd comes back, I mean, when the, uh, I'm sorry, when the temple police come back after this failed attempt to arrest him, they, they say, when, when they say that, they, they, they accuse them of being seduced by his heresy, if you will. And they say, what, what do you mean? And then they, they say this, has any one of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? So now their argument is, the reason that he can't be the Messiah is because we don't believe he is. That's not confident, it's what? It's arrogant, isn't it? It's arrogant. But fortunately or unfortunately, we all hung around people like this, right? Who know so much that the main reason why it couldn't be the way that I say it is is because they don't believe that it is. And then he says this. He says, but this crowd which does not know the law, they are what? 
They're accursed. Remember again, who are, who are, who's the crowd? Where are they from? They're the riffraff. They're the poor people. They're the working people. They're the people that don't belong where? They don't belong here, and they especially don't belong in this debate. And the reason why they don't know the law is because they're what? They're accursed. This crowd, they're ignorant. They're cursed with stupidity. And no sooner is this boast out of his mouth when one of their own speaks up. Who is it? Yes, our old friend. The one guy who's listened to him. Nicodemus, who'd gone to Jesus before and who was one of them, asked, our law does not judge people without first giving them a hearing to find out what they're doing, does it? He's pointing out to them their own, he's calling into question their own actions. They accuse Jesus of breaking the law, yet a lawyer in their own midst stands up and says, I'm going to challenge your own law keeping here. You guys aren't making sense. And they respond as most arrogant folks do when they're caught. They what? They lie. And by the way, it underscores the bigotry. Really. They think they're justified to lie. All because the Galilean can't be from God. All because the marginalized person can't be from God. And they also then try to beat Nicodemus down. They replied, surely you're not also from what? You're not also from Galilee. Search and you'll see that no prophet is to arise from Galilee. See, now they're just making stuff up. You know why? Jonah was from Galilee. Nehum was from Galilee. As a matter of fact, the village of Capernaum when you pronounce it in Hebrew or Aramaic, it's actually Kafir Nehum, the village of Nehum. Elijah was probably from Galilee too. But if you say it loud enough, and you say it long enough, and if you believe you are your own authority because of your knowledge or our knowledge of scripture or our knowledge of truth, if you say it loud enough, long enough, no one's gonna question you. It must be the what? It must be the truth. And that's the reason why he cannot be the Messiah because none of us believe in him. What's great though, as you follow this through, what's great is that their opponents get more and more confused and their argument gets more and more convoluted. And when it happens, when finally they come to the end, at least they'll be faced with only one decision. And that is either to admit that they're what? <laughs> that they're wrong? And by the way, as soon as we admit that, that we're wrong, God then can show us what's what? what's right or they'll close their minds and they'll walk away as what happened last chapter master this is a very difficult teaching you don't want to leave me too do you is it that difficult that you would leave me too
So the crowd takes over again. When they heard these words, some in the crowd said, this is really the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah. But some asked, surely the Messiah does not come from Galilee, does he? Now they're even buying into the lie. They must believe they don't come from Galilee. Why? Because these guys have been saying it long enough that now that they believe it. Has not the scripture said that Messiah is descended from David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David lived? So when Jesus said, you know me and you know where I'm from, they really don't, do they? Yeah, he's raised in Nazareth, in the Galilee, but he was born where? In Bethlehem, just outside of Judea. So there was a what? And I guess that's one thing to, to continue to point out as we study the Gospel of John. You know, when Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a what? I came to bring a sword. Whenever Jesus preaches, people don't seem to unify, they seem to what? They seem to divide. So there was division among him. Not unity among them, there was division among them. Not unity, but division. What is it that divides them? What is it that's keeping the Bible believers from recognizing the living Bible, the living word right in front of them? To me, the biggest argument is, is not so much how he treats the law, it's how he applies the law to how he treats other people. See, up until this point, the only reason why they're trying to kill him is because he seems to have mercy and compassion on people that they don't believe deserves it. And look at the marginalized people that Jesus has spent his divinity on up until this point. Right? Even a Samaritan woman. Samaritan woman, the, 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 the man by the, uh, uh, by the pool of Bethesda. 38 years, a lifetime. A lifetime. That proves that this guy can't be of God. That proves that he's not worthy of God's mercy. Because God hasn't done anything for him now. This is where Jesus spends his time. See, because the thing is, is that if the Messiah and God begins to point out how much these marginalized people really mean to him, then they have to begin to examine their own hearts. Because up until now, the Bible believer's attitude is, if God hates you, then why should I not hate you? And then their righteousness is based on those that they hate because they're constantly comparing themselves to them and they never then have to make any decision about themselves. They never have to be convicted that they're not loving, that they're not merciful. They don't have to be convicted that they're not really believers even though they claim to love God and love their neighbor as their self. Jesus is proving to them that they don't. So the law is, is there, we study, just like we're doing today. 
Our law, uh, the gospel of John, it's ours, it's there. We study, we debate, we, we spend all Sabbath school debating and talking about the covenant, which was on paper, you know, it's, it, it's there. But when it comes down to it, what Jesus is saying is, is if that word does not live in us, if it doesn't breathe in us, if it isn't shown in how we treat people, especially the marginalized, then he's not in us. Is that true? because it becomes a whole lot easier to treat people that way and leave the word on the page. And this is why they're looking to kill him instead of proclaim him what? King of kings and Lord of lords. Son of David, have mercy on me. It gets to the point in the Gospel of John that only the marginalized recognize him. That cry out is from Bartimaeus. Son of David, have mercy on me. He's the only one that knows it. He's the only one that recognizes it. Along the road that day. That's how we treat people. Desire of Ages, in a message to these Bible believers, which means it's a message to them, but also to who? To us. And she's commenting on the feast of Matthew Levi. She says in, in, on page 279, the teaching of Christ, though it was represented by the new wine, was not a new doctrine. By the way, John is going to point that out too in John 18. I give you a new commandment, which is not really a new commandment. It's an old commandment that you what? That you love one another. So she says, it's not a new doctrine, but the revelation of that which had been taught from the beginning. But to the Pharisees, the truth of God had lost its original significance and beauty. To them, Christ's teaching was new in almost every respect, and it was unrecognized and unacknowledged. All the truth that has been given to the world through patriarchs and prophets shone out in new beauty in the words of Christ, and I would add, in the actions of Christ. But the scribes and the Pharisees had no desire for the precious new wine. Until emptied of the old traditions, customs, and practices, they had no place in mind or heart for the teachings of Christ. They clung to dead forms and turned away from the living truth and the power of God. And what's interesting is that these old customs, these old practices, that's, it, it, it's not a Jewish thing. The Bible believers in, in the Gospel of John, what's actually old is the scriptures to them. Because again, it's still where? It's still on the page. They can do with it whatever they want. They clung to dead forms and turned away from the living truth and the power of God. And I always love that Mrs. White will spend her time Picking on dead Jews, yeah. Pick on dead Israelites, all she wants. But then there's always this line that says, it was this that proved the ruin of these Jewish leaders and it will prove the ruin of many souls in our own day. So we thought that she was only gonna, you know, kick dead Israelites, but now she comes after who? Now she comes after us. Thousands are making the same mistake as did the Pharisees whom Christ reproved at Matthew's feast. Rather than give up some cherished idea or discard some idol of opinion, may refuse the truth which comes down from their father of light. 
They trust in self, depend upon their own wisdom, do not realize their spiritual poverty. They insist on being saved in some way by which they may perform some important work. And when they see that there's no way of weaving self into the work, they reject the salvation provided. So who's Jesus talking to today? Is he talking to those Jewish leaders that died over 2,000 years ago? No, it's the living word, isn't it? It comes off the page. It doesn't speak to them and goes to the grave with them. It comes to who? It comes to us. The way we treat people, y'all, especially the marginalized. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Always remember that he said that, you know, if there was a way physically possible on this planet for uh, one and two to be one, it would be those. (laughs) Because he said, the first is utmost important, love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And then he says, and the second is as. The only reason that it has to be second is because on this planet, something has to be second. We live by the laws of physics. No two pieces of mass can occupy the same space at the same time. It's not even one and one A, according to Jesus. It's one and one, which he can do because he's master of all physics and time, isn't he? It's the way we treat people, especially the marginalized. Who belongs and who doesn't? And if we say somebody doesn't belong, where are we getting our information from? Dead words on a tablet or the living, breathing word in the mercy and the, and the grace of Jesus Christ? I came across this quote. Somebody gave it to me after communion one year. It says this, a redemptive community, which is the true bride, looks at the pain, hurt, and ugliness caused by evil and says to someone, you've come to the right place. We know what to do. When you love to be able to tell the hurting, you've come to the right place because we know what to do. You can be part of a family that never ends and that bond can start with me. If you will have my God be your God, then my people will be your people and together we will fear no evil for God is with us. So I thank God that he reminds us of that today in a story about the festival of the booths and the care that he has for us as we're pilgrims on this earth. Thank you for hanging in there uh, with it.